Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot's subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. If you want great new science fiction and fantasy books to read, but are overwhelmed by all of the publishing buzz, let us help. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes and what you're looking for, and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine, so you can treat yourself and support an indie too. And TBR is also available as a gift. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to SFF Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 83, and we are recording on July 10th. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Sharifa Williams, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. And today we're talking about our favorite books from the spring of 2020. Yay! This was actually a weird one because so many... Um so many book dates got moved around yeah, for obvious reasons. <laughs> well, and also what I was capable of reading was limited. <laughs> this is true. I, yes. <laughs> so. I've just basically been blasting through not even that many books at all through, like, by listening to audiobooks because mm. I can't read things on the page right now. But even then, like, Way, way less than I have read in years, I think. So, yeah, and I've DNF'd more than I ever have. And yeah. it, I'm pretty sure it's not the fault of the books. I'm pretty sure it's the problem lies with my brain. Like, yeah. I just can't. There's certain things that I just, anyway, we'll get into some yes. of those specifics uh, <laughs> during our discussion because there was, there is a book I'm going to shout out that was just like the right book at the right time. But uh, before we get into our news, you want to tell us about a sponsor? Why not? Today's episode is sponsored in part by Tor Books, bringing us The Relentless Moon by Mary Robinette Coal. The impending climate disaster of the meteor strike is becoming clear, but the political situation is already overheated. Riots and sabotage plague the space program. The IAC's goal of getting as many people as possible off Earth before it becomes uninhabitable is being threatened. Alma York is on her way to Mars, but the moon colony is still being established. Fellow lady astronaut Nicole Worgen is thrilled to be one of the pioneer settlers and keeping the program on track, but she's less happy that her husband, the governor of Kansas, is considering a run for president. So this is part of the Lady Astronaut series. It will appeal to people who love realistic science fiction like Arrival and The Martian and science fiction with strong female leads like Hidden Figures, Gravity, and Interstellar. And The Relentless Moon is available wherever books are sold. 
And also, if you upload your receipt to read.mcmillan.com promo relentless moon postcards, you can receive a free postcard featuring a message from the main character, Nicole Morgan. So if that sounds like your jam, check out The Relentless Moon, again by Mary Robinette Kowal. All right, let's talk about some news. And Mm -hmm. I have... Well, actually, let's talk about some award winners first, because this one happened a little bit ago. Uh, We got the results of the 2020 Locus Awards, and this was actually a really great list uh, from the finalists to the winners, and we have a couple of authors who won twice over in this year's awards so for science fiction novel the winner was the city in the middle of the night by charlie jane anders a favorite among rioters and i'm sure among readers as well i actually loved that one i have that one on my shelf and i have not been i like i haven't gotten to it yet but i keep thinking this sounds like a book i really would enjoy reading and just escaping with Mm mm-hmm so, but I love uh, Charlie Jane Anders' work in general. So I know it's, I'm sure it's fantastic. And just so you know, the some of the finalists it was competing against were, were The Testaments by Margaret Atwood and also The Future of Another Timeline by Annalee Newitz, The Rosewater Insurrection and The Rosewater Redemption by Tade Thompson, a favorite, and a few more books. So that was a pretty good list. And then for fantasy novel, we got the winner as Middle Game by Seanan McGuire, another author favorite. And this category also had like a ton of really amazing books like Gods of Jade and Shadow by Silvia Moreno-Garcia and Ninth House by Leigh Bardugo, The Starless Sea by Erin Morgenstern, like lots of buzzy books, Storm of Locusts by Rebecca Rowanhorse. So many good books. And there were a bunch of other winners, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, which feels like it was released 10,000 years ago. (laughs) It really does. The Marlon James book, by the way. Yeah. So, and that was horror novel. Um... Which I guess I hadn't I hadn't really thought about it even as a, a horror novel because I was so like, oh, it's fantasy, but um you should I would call it horrifying for yes. sure. Horrifying, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ugh, that book. I know. That was a big like it was a big buzzy book and also a big intense book. Yeah. Uh but definitely check out the list. YA was the dra- was Dragon Pearl by Yoon Holly. Were there any other standouts for you? I know that there's another one that was big with us that's on this list. Yeah. There. So This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El Matar and Max Gladstone won the novella category, which it's like, I think it's like won a billion awards mm-hmm. at this point. <laughs> so many. Oh, but I did want to shout out the anthology winner, New Sons, original speculative fiction by people of color. Nisi Shal, who is an amazing writer is also an amazing editor and she edited it and that collection is so freaking good y'all like it is so good it's so good (laughs) it deserves every award so I was super jazzed to see that get some recognition because I loved it I just loved it 
Yeah. And then Ted Chang actually won two awards in this uh, for collection, best collection for exhalation. And there was another one. I think farther down the list that of course now I can Yeah, short find. story maybe? No, not short oh, story. Uh, novelette. Uh, yes, novelette. That's right. And Charlie Jane Anders also actually the short story was Charlie Jane Anders. So the bookstore at the end of America, Charlie Jane Anders won. So those are our two our authors who won two awards, which must be really exciting for them both. So definitely check out the full list um, and blow up your TBR <laughs> and enjoy. All right, let's see. Uh, since we were already talking about Silvia Moreno-Garcia, I want to like Muppet Arms with <laughs> everybody about some news that she announced uh, late in June. Tor is going to be republishing her Mexican vampire novel, Certain Dark Things, which if you haven't read it, it is great. The world building is so interesting. It is definitely not like the other vampire novels you have read. And she's also written a fantasy of manners, mm -hmm. like, you know, like drawing room kind of fantasy. Uh, the Beautiful Ones is also being reprinted. This is what I love about Moreno Garcia is that like, she writes so widely. She's written sci-fi. She's written different kinds of fantasy. She's written horror now. She's got vampires. Like, is there anything that she can't do? So far, the answer is no. <laughs> and, and her older books are, like, woefully hard to get. So I'm really excited that more of them will now be readily available to everyone. Yeah, I have always, like, I feel like I'm going to be forever trying to read all of her backlist because mm -hmm. she's so prolific and we recently published uh reading pathways for sylvia moreno garcia and it just was a reminder of how much catching up i have to do <laughs> but i really really want to read that vampire one certain dark things because oh, yeah. i think i'm ready to start reading more vampire stuff again yeah. I've had enough downtime. And to know it comes <laughs> from her, I'm like extra on board. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm into, uh, what is that? I want to say here. I'm into like new takes on vampires. Yeah. Like I don't need any rehashings. I need new stuff. So, yeah. Same. Yes. Let's, let's bring in the new vampires. Indeed. Well, speaking of, we're just going to be doing segues. All <laughs> speaking of dark fantasy, um, some sad news, not necessarily for me because I'm happy when series have an ending point. Chilling Adventures of Sabrina is coming to its end at Netflix. It, If you don't remember, I believe we mentioned it some time ago that Netflix had picked it up for another two parts because because they're calling them parts so there was part one through four but that is the end of it they picked up those two parts and then now they're they're ending it they're not renewing it for another season so I have still only, I believe, seen the first two parts, and I haven't caught up with the third. And I remember we had been talking about some, you know, there had been some stuff. Like, I generally enjoyed the show um, 
but there were definitely some problematic things and some conversations around the show. It sounds like, though, this might have more to do with um, Netflix perhaps starting to phase out some of the non-Netflix produced content. So Sabrina was originally um, conceptualized as for broadcast. So then it was picked up by Netflix. And now I think it's sounding like it's not confirmed here, but it's sounding like Netflix is focusing more on their own produced content. And I actually think four parts or four seasons or whatever is not really bad. Um, so I'm fine with this news. <laughs> but I'm probably going to catch up with the show just because, you know, I don't know. I always feel like watching fall themed content in the summertime, but I don't know. I'm, I'm not too sad, but so, you know, if you've been waiting to watch this show, uh, once it ends, it's going to be ending with this last season. Yeah, I don't. I've always kind of thought it was interesting how, like, British TV, for example, they'll do, like, six episodes, call it a season, wait three years, and then release season two. And you're just like, what's going on here? Yeah. Because that's not how American broadcasting works. But I also think, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that, like, because as we, like, I mean, Lost is the perfect example, right, of a show that just went on for too long. Like, mm -hmm. things get to a certain level of popular, and they go on forever, and they lose their way. They don't have a plan. And you're just like, this was not a good idea. <laughs> um, like, let's get more and more wild with our plot. Yeah. And stop making sense. <laughs> right, right. Or, like, you know, Game of Thrones is another oh. example that, like, perhaps they could have waited a while in between seasons and been smarter about some things just that's you know just a thought but then again there's also shows where I'm like how dare you stop making this so yeah so it's very subjective for me as I'm sure it is for most of us uh but I don't mind like a well-conceived short run of something me in, neither. in theory in theory yeah I I prefer of course that these shows get advance notice like well in advance right. so that they can you know, they can offer viewers and fans a satisfying conclusion to the series. Mm -hmm. That's all. Like, as long as there's a satisfying conclusion, it feels like it was all well thought out, then have at it, move on to the next thing. Right. Because <laughs> that's for sure there will always be a next thing. Yes. Too many next things. I'll never <laughs> catch up. Well, speaking of next things, <laughs> hey, we did it for every single news story. <laughs> Look at that. Good job. It's recording on a Friday. This is what it sounds like right now. <laughs> um, so Philip Pullman wrote, he, okay, so here's the story. Philip Pullman wrote a novella about Lyra that was released for charity as like where did it go it was like a chapbook or something or like a 
you know, it was a, oh, yeah, it was a written manuscript mm. and it was auctioned off for charity in 2004. So, you know, yeah, like 16 years ago, he wrote this novella. But the only person that ever got to read it, presumably, was the person who won the charity auction. But now they're going to release it and they're going to release it in print and audio. And the audiobook is going to be narrated by MVP Olivia Coleman. Who is amazing. Mm-hmm. She's so good. Oh my goodness. So love good. her. Love her. <laughs> so that's exciting. I mean, I don't even care about audiobooks. And I'm like, oh, Olivia Coleman is narrating it. Like <laughs> so, uh, so 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 and I guess they decided, you know, Philip Pullman put out a statement according to this tour.com uh, story where they decided to Release it now because after the developments in the sequels that he's been writing, it apparently, you know, makes it helps fill in some blanks for readers. So I guess we're just going to like keep getting extra (laughs) Philip Pullman stuff for a while now. Like he's not stopping anytime soon. And I have very mixed feelings about this. I, I haven't read the Book of Dust or the, uh, the oh, where did it go, Secret Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm a little inclined not to, and, but I couldn't tell you exactly. I, I guess what it is is I just don't want to ruin my feelings about the original trilogy, which I have not reread in probably, ugh, like, I don't know, maybe 20 years. So I just am like holding on to those feelings. And so many authors who keep revisiting worlds that I have loved in the past have a tendency to like, speaking of things that should just have been ended, like they just do things and you're like, please stop, please stop touching it. It was so good before. And now I, I don't, I don't want you to touch it anymore. Um, But then again, like as always, sometimes it's great. And I just, I just am not ready to find out which it is with this series or to find out like if my nostalgia, you know, if it holds up. So, so basically I'm not touching anything related to his dark materials, but I know I'm sure listeners have other feelings and are excited for more, which is also valid, valid life choice. So (laughs) that you can look forward to this in October. I don't know. What are your feelings, Sharifa? This is, I think, the the difficulty, the the beauty and the difficulty of these big world-buildy books is that I can see the allure, especially for an author very attached to these worlds, to go back in and to build and build and build. And maybe once you start, you can't stop. But I'm in the exact same camp. I'm just like... I don't think I'm going to read this. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to bury our heads in the sand and pretend it's not happening. <laughs> yes, this is just what's going to happen. But feel free, everybody else, to read it. <laughs> well, and if you have read the new books uh, and or when you have a chance to read this one, I would love to hear your thoughts. Like, are people liking them? I have no idea. I don't know anybody who's read them. So uh, you can always email us your thoughts, sffia at bookriot.com. Super curious. Me too. The only people I know who've read them are like super fans, but I never heard back. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, we are going to talk about books we have read in a minute. <laughs> but first... Let me tell you about another sponsor. 
which is Rage and Ruin by Jennifer L. Armentrout as part of the Harbinger series published by Inkyard Press. Half-Angel Trinity and her bonded gargoyle protector Zane have been working with demons to stop the apocalypse. I just said so many words that are interesting in that sentence. Side note, (laughs) side note. Okay. They've been working to stop the apocalypse while avoiding falling in love, like you do. The Harbinger is coming, but who or what is it? All of humankind may fall if Trinity and Zane can't win the race against time as dark forces gather. Don't miss Rage and Ruin Book 2 in the Fantastical Harbinger Trilogy from number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer L. Armentrout. So, yeah, gargoyles, I'm very interested. Demons, I'm very interested. A Girl with an Explosive Secret, also interested. Uh, fellow author Gina Showalter has called this spinoff of the Dark Elements series intoxicating. So you can get the first two books now wherever books, ebooks, and audiobooks are sold. Might be a good new series for you all. Again, that is Rage and Ruin by Jennifer L. Armentrout, and it is book two in the Harbinger series, published by Inkyard Press. Mm, I haven't read a good gargoyle book in a long time. I know. Oh, and do you know what somebody told me? What? <laughs> is that all of Gargoyles, the cartoon, is now available on Disney Plus? Oh, my goodness. You've yeah. ruined my entire... Well, I have no plans <laughs> to read, really, but... <laughs> Like, I, the only reason I have not fallen deep into that rabbit hole yet is because I'm waiting until I have, like, 12 hours free. That show ran for quite some time. Yeah, I think there's, like, 200 episodes oh or something. Oh, my goodness. It's a lot. There's a lot of episodes. And I'm very excited, oh, slash a little nervous, to revisit that gem from my childhood. Oh, boy. Well, if we watch it. Uh, around the same time we can have conversation there you go we'll do like a live watch and that would be (laughs) that would be super fun slash very dangerous um i need to like take three days off just so we can do yeah we're like sorry everybody but sorry work sorry (laughs) we'll be back when we're done with gargoyles Oh, all right, all right. Uh, I don't have any gargoyles in my book, so I have no segue. But I, okay, so talking about how it was hard to read this spring yes. for obvious oh. reasons, right? There's a lot going on in the world. Oh, and I found myself not finishing so many more books than usual because I, it turns out there were certain emotions on the page that I just couldn't read. Like anything that had too much angst, I was like, I'm sorry, I'm already full up on angst. Like I can't mm-hmm. handle anymore. And I, it's funny to me because I know sometimes that can be cathartic. Like, oh, yes, we're all going through this together. But for me, it just felt like emotional overload. So I had to put down books that I think under other circumstances I would have loved, but it just wasn't the right time for me and that book right now. Did you have that experience? Yes. I I mean, I have had that experience. Well, for me, I guess my problem has been that if a book, a book has to be suddenly way, way more, I guess, page turny and compelling mm. for me because I just find myself so distracted all the time. Like my brain just cannot focus. Yeah. So I just need something like anything where it's a really involved and complicated plot, which isn't 
to say like the books I chose don't have complicated plots because they do, but it's a certain type of like what you think of as real heavy reading. Yeah. I just couldn't really, like my brain wasn't focused enough to really pay attention to details. And I will mm. say that one of my picks sounds like the absolute worst thing to read at a time <laughs> like this, but it actually turned out to be the right thing. And I will explain when I get to it. Yeah, so interesting. All right, well, so my science fiction pick, I honestly did not think that I was going to be in the right brain space for this book, but I ended up loving it. It was exactly the escape I wanted. It's Vagabonds by Hao Jingfang, translated by Ken Liu, another MVP in mm -hmm. sci-fi fantasy. Uh, and this book is about a group of teenagers, although it is not YA. It is like definitely not YA. Um, but it is about a group of teenagers who were sent from Mars to Earth in like the late two, like two, 2096, I want to say. No, it's after that. Anyway, okay. It's like Mars has been settled and Mars and Earth went to war. And like generation, a generation or two after that war has ended, the, Mars sends a group of teenagers to Earth for like five years as part of this diplomatic sort of detente situation. They're trying to figure out how to trade together again. And it's like a goodwill sort of gesture slash embassy. So these teenagers who are from Mars, they're, I think, 13 when they go. And then they are on Earth for like five very formative years. Like if you think about what you go through from age 13 to 18, like that's pretty intense and they're on earth for that time and now as the book opens they're just they're literally on the spaceship headed back to mars and most of them are like oh my gosh i'm so glad to be going home like there's a lot of really intense political rhetoric around the differences between Mars and Earth. All of Earth thinks that Mars is run by this like horrible dictator and it's like this, you know, collective where you can't have your own opinions and everybody has to be cookie cutters of each other. And then everybody on Mars thinks that everybody on Earth is like capitalist scum who all they care about is money and they don't care about art or intelligence or, you know, philosophy or beauty or truth. Like they don't care about anything except money. And, you know, both are wrong, but both are also a little bit right. And so these teenagers are really struggling, it turns out, to reintegrate. And we are mostly following one of them, uh, Luo Ying, who is a dancer, and she's the granddaughter of the governor of Mars. And so she's, in particular, been struggling because, like, you know, is her grandfather a dictator? Like, she's pretty sure the answer is no. Um, but, you know, she when she gets back, she starts to think really hard about her experiences and why she's having such a hard time settling back in. And in the meantime, Mars and Earth are going through these really intense negotiations that could lead to another war. And you're hopping between different perspectives. You get some more of the teenagers, you get some of the government officials, you get, you know, different people on different sides of this, uh, including a filmmaker from Earth whose mentor went to Mars, did some of his like most amazing work and then died and left him like this like sort of weird secret mission. And what's amazing about this book, and one of the reasons I wasn't sure I was going to make it through, is it's actually very thinky. Like, it's very much about these ideals of 
political governance and what's the best system and creativity and under what conditions does creativity flourish? And, you know, uh, what does it mean to be an artist? What does it mean to be a dancer? What does it mean to be a creator? And it's very... It's like there's a lot of citations about different philosophical, you know, arguments and and it's so heady, like it really is very heady. But it's also kind of quiet in a way that I wasn't expecting a war novel to be like there's a little bit of just a little bit of distance in there that makes it not stressful or at least was not stressful for me to read even though the characters are undergoing some really intense situations but somehow you know it just all worked so beautifully and it made me think in a way that felt really refreshing like it gave my brain some interesting things to consider and in a time when like I thought my brain was overloaded (laughs) but somehow the way this book like gently led me through these really intense moments and these really intense political and philosophical arguments was just exactly right and I think it's a brilliant book because there are no easy answers to any of these questions and they are considered so thoughtfully and from so many different angles and the characters you will get so attached to these characters and the translation is so good like I just loved everything about it so if you like thinky science fiction, if you like that Earth-Mars sort of conflict setup, um, and if you like like thinking about what does it mean, you know, to to be an individual in a society and what's, how do we, you know, bring everybody through together, which is obviously a very relevant question to our lives right now. Uh, I think this is a really excellent read. So again, that is Vagabonds by Hao Jing Feng, and it is translated by Ken Liu. Wow, that's a really fascinating concept. Oh, it was just that book. Yeah, it's really well, I just yeah, it's so good. I just like hope so many people read it because it's it's really good. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I'll have to put it on my list for sure. I don't even know how to follow up to that, but I'll just have to do it. Um <laughs> so this is the one where I was talking about, you know. Maybe this isn't the science fiction pick for everyone at this moment right now. Mm. <laughs> but The Down Days by Ilza Yugo is about an epidemic complete with everyone wearing masks <laughs> to prevent, you know, as much as they can the spread of this disease that's going around. So it felt like weirdly a weirdly familiar In a way, it didn't when I originally read this synopsis earlier this year. Mm -hmm. Who would have thought? (laughs) So it imagines a quarantined South African city, a a sort of sick city that's been struggling with this laughing epidemic for a long time. So when we meet the characters in the book, the new normal is not so new. And... The death toll is high, and anyone suspected of catching laughter, they're called grinners, the infected people, they might end up at these quarantine camps that sound like absolute nightmare places, or worse. And it's not just that the infected have a case of the laughs, but the sickness eventually degrades their bodies in really horrible ways as well. So... Not a pleasant thing to get overall. 
And this is actually kind of a more difficult story to describe because there are a lot of storylines. There are multiple storylines that converge, but it's about this really strange time and an even stranger incident that causes this, this convergence of storylines. So there's a dead collector, somebody who literally collects the dead um, because there are a lot of them. So somebody needs to do that job. And there are a few characters who are involved with the hair trade, which is a interesting, an interesting hmm. plot point I'd literally never seen in another book. So they procure and sell human hair for weaves and the like. And there's an orphan girl who's in search of her baby brother who is kidnapped. And then there are other side characters who have their own storylines, but maybe they're a little bit less interspersed and highlighted in the actual book. So another thing about the book is that the perspective shifts around often and quickly, which I thought should I should note because I know that that's a definite part of the reading experience some people really enjoy and some people don't but you know as somebody who gets really bored and distracted easily these days I actually really enjoyed it and that's I think one of the big reasons why this book worked for me and the stories of each character intertwines some more deeply than others but then in the beginning, they're all going about their separate lives with their separate problems, and we're introduced to these problems that catapult them into this deeper storyline. And it's actually the missing kid that brings these multiple stories together. That's not a spoiler in any way. It's just like what happens early on. And some of the other storylines include a mysterious woman known as the Unicorn who has this backstory that unravels slowly over the course of the book as this person who's a pony jacker who basically takes hair, is the person who procures the hair for selling, goes on this desperate search for her after they have this brief exchange before she disappears. And then there's also like a former medic who fell into an addiction spiral that recharted the course of her life. And also important to the story is this Sisterhood of Nuns. I feel like I've been reading a lot of books with Sisterhoods of Nuns lately. I don't know if yeah. that's a thing that's going around in science fiction, but... This it has absolutely to... is. Yeah, right? Okay, I'm not imagining it. Nuns are the new vampires, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, everybody. I got to go write my nun sci-fi novella. <laughs> I will read that. <laughs> So this this particular sisterhood is at the helm of the city's hair trade. And these are not like the Benedictive sisters you might imagine. Devious things are definitely afoot in the nunnery. And then there are also other familiar things like conspiracy theories and conspiracy media. There's also untrustworthy government and the controlling of information by the government there are these sort of dystopian systems of regulation to prevent the spread of disease, including things like, you know, regular temperature and virus checks and stranger things, including like the prohibition of comedy clubs or anything that'll incite laughter. 
And there's even a big protest that happens in the story. It all feels very prescient. It's very strange. Um, and each of the characters has experienced loss in a really big way, some many times over. And I came away with the sense that this story is in good part about mass loss and grief. And in that way, it's also frighteningly relatable. In a way, I did find cathartic. And after everything I've said, I actually did not find this story terribly depressing. I actually found it pretty hopeful, like hopeful about humanity and how we sometimes help each other through these really, you know, cataclysmic, seemingly endlessly tragic events. So I felt really good coming away from this book. And that says a lot considering how much is going on. I will say that there are some trigger and content warnings for child abuse and death, drug addiction, and there is also some fat phobic language. So do note that. And yeah, very, <laughs> very timely book. And again, I've been talking about The Down Days by Ilza Hugo. So that one I know was on our most anticipated. Yes. Uh and I want to pat us on the back because also both of my picks are from our most anticipated of earlier this year. Look we actually that. read them this year, sure. <laughs> is this a, we is did this it the first time? I think it is. Honestly, I think it is. <laughs> oh Lord. Uh, well, that I'm gonna bump that up on my list. I, yes. I that sounds. I like a. I like a hopeful, ultimately hopeful story yes. right about now. Uh, speaking of feel good, listen, y'all. This fantasy book I'm about to tell you about was the most feel-good thing I have read in I don't know how long. Like, it is the most feel-good feelings, which, you know, we could all use in our lives, uh, while also having a real depth to it. House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Clune. It does come with a trigger warning for discussion of past child abuse, which is a weird thing to say about like a feel-good, happy, happy, feel-good book. But, okay, so here's the premise of this book. The main character, Linus, is like a basically a caseworker, a social worker at the department in charge of magical youth. In this world that is basically our own world, there are people who have magical powers and they are sort of rounded up by the government for their quote unquote own protection um, and put in these like orphanages type situations um, to help them quote unquote control their magic. And they're like see something, say something signs everywhere where you're being encouraged to report if you see somebody exhibiting signs of magic use. And so Linus works at this, you know, department, and he is in charge of going to these orphanages and making sure that they're being treated well. And he he honestly does, like, believe that the children are there for their own safety. Like, he has bought the rhetoric and thinks that he's helping. And he gets assigned a, like, very intense and highly classified job to go to this island orphanage where there are six, quote-unquote, dangerous children in residence to make sure that everything is on the up and up. And one of the children is the Antichrist. Uh, another one can turn into a Pomeranian. 
One of them is like a garden-loving gnome girl. There's a sprite. There's a wyvern. There's like a... Nobody knows what he is, but he like is kind of like a green blob. Uh, and the caretaker of the orphanage is this very mysterious person named Arthur, who is so clearly 100% dedicated to the children. And so Linus shows up and he's like, well, this is all a lot. Like, the this is child is literally the Antichrist. This gnome keeps threatening to bury me in the garden. Like, I don't know what I'm doing here or how this is all going to work out, but like, I'm going to do my job and then go home. And he becomes so attached to the kids and starts to understand, like, the damage that this system has done and starts to think about his place in it. And also the kids are so funny. Oh my gosh. They're so amazing. Like laugh out loud moments. Um, It's just one of them wants to be a butler. Like I can't even tell you how (laughs) enjoyable the children are. There's a lovely gay romance that happens. There is just there's this really amazing moment in an ice cream shop that I'm like I'm I'm spoilers. I'm not gonna say anything else except for that like I don't know that I've ever cried over a scene that takes place in an ice cream shop before but I was like crying happy tears reading this one scene. And I just don't remember the last time I read a book that like it's not that original of a premise right like we've seen this premise before but TJ Klune has done it in such a beautiful way and with such heart and in a way that like really pokes at some of the things that like I for instance as somebody who lived in New York like I take those see something say something posters for granted and when I put that on this book I was like yeah I need to think more about this Um, and a lot of things and it's just oh he's just so good at the feelings I like cannot even can't can't so yeah this book will give you all of the warm fuzzies it will also have you thinking about it about life in a different way. Oh, there's a cat character who's fantastic. I always forget, like, gotta love a cat in a fantasy novel, like, always a good sign. Um, It's just fantastic. It's really, really, really good. So again, that's The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Klune. I've been on the hold list for that book for like 20 years. but Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I believe it. It's gotten a lot of buzz uh, for good reasons. Yeah. Uh, but you'll be real happy when it comes in. I, I feel like excited. I can guarantee it. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, my fantasy pick, this is our third Sylvia Moreno Garcia segue of the <laughs> episode. <laughs> my fantasy pick is Mexican Gothic. And... I have been waiting for a reason to pick up this book because I knew I'd love it. This is a Southern Gothic fit for fans of anybody who loves Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. And it also has paranormal elements. And there's a gloomy castle, a handsome, charismatic son of an aristocratic family, this scrappy socialite protagonist, and there's this mystery. And it's all set in 1950s Mexico, which is exciting and great. And so the story kicks off when the main character, Noemi Taboada's father, receives this really alarming letter from a relative, Noemi's cousin. And the letter is this sort of call for help. But it sounds suspect, like her father is concerned that maybe her cousin needs to seek professional medical advice for like a psychiatrist so 
Noemi is sent to High Place, which is this crumbling mansion where her newlywed cousin lives with her husband and his family and where she's basically been cloistered because her family hasn't really seen or heard of her since this marriage. And High Place and its its people are immediately totally unwelcoming to Noemi. They don't seem to like her at all. The whole place and its people are all English transplants who made their fortune mining for silver in England and then moved to Mexico. And Noemi, who's used to living this really boisterous and colorful life in in her own town, finds herself in this place full of really stifling rules and people who betray this immediate dislike for her or seem fascinated by her in really creepy skin-crawling ways, looking at her basically like she's some sort of curio and engaging in really gross conversation about like racial purity and eugenics. yeah gross there's a whole like dinner table conversation that almost made me like put down the book like i am so uncomfortable in this situation and i know it's fictional but good grief (laughs) (laughs) but you know noemi doesn't book it like many of us would because she gets the sense that her cousin does indeed need her help and she ends up jumping through great hoops to get to the bottom of her cousin's really strange illness and to figure out what this family is up to. And of course, she faces all sorts of challenges for most of the family, including her cousin's charismatic husband. And then she also tries to make an ally of the youngest brother who doesn't seem to have it in him to go against the grain or other, you know, his family. And she has to depend on the help of people the family looks down on, which are her own people who live far away, sort of far away, a car ride away in town. But even getting away from High Place ends up posing this really great difficulty because, you know, she's not allowed to drive, whatever. They have all sorts of reasons why. And then the story addresses racism and, as you might imagine from that whole dinner conversation thing, racial purity ideologies as well as the exploitation of Native and Indigenous people by white oppressors. And then there's also sexism and misogyny confronted in the story and there's just so much gaslighting that happens in this book and it's intentional to show how some of the male characters use gaslighting to control the women around them and to rob them of their agency and then there's also trigger warnings for sexual assault and mention of rape so do note that a lot going on here but it does have that if you like a sort of southern gothic type book I think that you will really find this was a page turner for me in that way because I really enjoy those books and I was waiting for a refreshing take on that so and of course I'm a fan of Silvia Moreno Garcia's work in general and I think my fandom of her was taken to a new level with this book and I do remember from my past of reading gothic tales a lot of them were super problematic with exoticization of anybody non-white and like my first gothic read was the castle that whispered by mona farnsworth when i was like 12 and that story is almost the reverse of this one (laughs) where you've got this lily white british woman who marries this portuguese man and mexican gothic was really just such a refreshing take on those stories and 
I think it's a really, really great one for horror lovers. On that note, though, I will finally say that there is a lot of body horror in this book. Oh, no. Yes. I immediately thought of you when one particular (laughs) scene was just like, wow, even I am queasy right now. Oh, Lord, I would not make it. I would not make it. But that's okay. I can love her other books. She's written so many. I mainly made that note for you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now I know I was gonna I was like, should I pick it up? And now I know that the answer is not, this one is not for me. That's okay. I'll reread her vampire book. Well, if you can if you can hang uh, out there, if body horror does not necessarily make you want to throw a book, <laughs> you might want to pick up Mexican Gothic again. That's by Silvia Moreno Garcia. She's so good. I mean, I I will say if there was anybody I was going to try to read body horror for, it would be her. Yeah, she's just incredibly amazing. And I still like, even though I felt a little bit off reading some of those parts, (laughs) I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to keep going because this is so good. There's no way I'm not going to not finish this book. Yeah, and I think there's there's some authors who just do it for this quick factor, but there's other authors who like are doing it for reasons then you trust them. And I yes. think Moreno Garcia is one of those authors. 100%. It was absolutely, it was necessary in this story. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so good. Hooray for good books for this spring. <laughs> yes. Thank goodness. Well, that wraps up our show. Uh, We want to shout out our sound editor, D.R. Baker, who makes SFFS sound as good as it can possibly sound. So many thanks to them. Uh, Thanks to you for listening. As always, you can email us at sffyet at bookriot.com. If you have feedback, books that you that we've talked about that you want to weigh in on, uh, theme ideas, you name it, shoot us an email again, sffyet at bookriot.com. If you are feeling inclined, you can also review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate the feedback and it does help other geeks and nerds to find the show. In between episodes, you can find us on social media. Sharifa, where are you at? I'm on Instagram at Williams. That's S-C-A-I-N-A-B Williams. And I am also on Instagram mostly these days at I am Jen IRL. That's I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will talk to you next time. Bye.